I think the first time we got a gig, Richard Meltzer sang, and he didn't really sing. He just screamed, piss, 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 piss. <laughs> Maybe he sang some other words, piss something and piss this and piss that. And that was at the Cafe Agogo, and the, the, the owner came up and said, what are you trying to do to me? I just got busted for Lenny Bruce. So I uh, listened to the cassette and I'm like, this is a hit. Holy cow, man. This is the best song I've ever heard. Oh, I was I was delighted. <laughs> I thought, how cool. MTV, they play anything. <laughs> they banned us. Hello and welcome to episode 44 of Vintage Rock Pod, the ultimate classic rock podcast that proudly claims that my music is better than yours. I'm Paul Stevenson. Thanks, as always, for hitting play. Now, on this week's show, I was delighted to speak with a man from one of my personal favourite bands when I was growing up. My friends and I, we used to go to our friend Higo's house, and we used to put on their, their records and their CDs and things like that, and we used to listen to their music all the time. And probably, like many of you listening, when I was kind of 16, 17, I was in a local band as well, with big dreams of being a rock star, of course. My band were called Acclaim. Yeah, okay. And our first ever proper gig in front of paying punters was supporting another local group in front of about 150 people, so it was hardly Wembley Stadium. But again, anyone who dreamed of making it big will remember their first gig in small surroundings. Now, we were obviously nervous. We had a small set of our own songs, but we decided we needed to open the show, seeing as though we were the first ones on stage of course, with a song that everyone would know and love. And the song we went with was Blue Oyster Cult's Don't Fear the Reaper. And as I was the drummer, it made this interview extra special for me because I ended up speaking to the man who was the real drummer and the man behind the kit for the longest time in Blue Oyster Cult, Albert Bouchard. Now, along with Albert, the classic lineup of the band consisted of his brother Joe Bouchard on bass, there was Alan Lania, Eric Bloom and Donald Rosa, otherwise known as Buck Dharma. Now, it's a difficult kind of thing to pigeonhole Blue Oyster Cult's music. Uh, some people say heavy metal, some say hard rock. There's elements of prog, psychedelic, even pop rock in the 80s, perhaps, with definite occult overtones throughout. Now, they were always such a, a diverse group as well, mainly because each member of the band wrote songs and they had outside help as well with some tracks too. All the members of the band pretty much sang lead vocals on various songs, especially the first few albums, so they were able to evolve and change really easily as well. Now, the band were best known, of course, for the mega records, Agents of Fortune, Fire of Unknown Origin, Secret Treaties, and the live album On Your Feet or On Your Knees, as well as, well, the huge hit singles like Burning For You, Godzilla, and the classic rock anthem that is Don't Fear the Reaper. Now, Albert was with the band during the real highs, but the tensions led to his departure in the early 80s, shortly before their popularity really declined. He did join and kind of get back with the group at various points since, though, even contributing to one of the songs on The Symbol Remains, which came out last year, the band's first studio release, the first new one for 19 years. The other members have also contributed to various projects of his over the years, too, which is good to hear. Now, before we listen to the interview with Albert, I just want to say that his internet connection wasn't the greatest, so you will hear the odd little internet rumble during the interview. The connection from the US East Coast to the Scottish Highlands was playing up a little bit that night, so please don't let that distract from the stories that he's got to tell. Now, he speaks about all the, the early stuff. I mean, an early meeting and later regret that features Jimi Hendrix, Blue Oyster Cult's early days and where the unique name came from, the real highs, the studio processes, the story behind Don't Fear the Reaper... And yes, 
that cowbell that's been parodied so many times and about the Imaginos trilogy as well, which has its origins going back to the 60s. It's a great interview. I hope you enjoy this. So here you go. Please listen to this and enjoy my interview with Blue Oyster Cult founding member and drummer Albert Bouchard. Thank you. Thank you. Good to be here, Paul. It's lovely to speak with you. Now, um, I'm looking forward to hearing about these uh, new albums. You've got Reimaginos. We're on to uh, number two. Number three is to follow. Number one came last year. But before we do that, because this is Vintage Rock Pod, we like to hear some of the classic rock stories. And I want to take you right back to, to the early days and a story that I heard once from when you were about 21, I think it was, when you you were playing with a house band and in walked two legendary figures in the, in the form of Jimi Hendrix and Ringo Starr. Now, you said that you don't tend to regret many things, but you, you certainly regretted that night not asking Jimmy a question. Can you tell us about that story and what happened that night? Sure, sure. So we were the house band at this club called Steve Paul Scene. It was in Midtown Manhattan. And, you know, all the rock stars who would play shows would always go there. It was an after-hours club, so they would always go there. So on this particular night, Ringo, well, first Jimmy Hendrix comes in. He goes to the far side of the room. And then Ringo comes in with, I think, just a couple people, and he sits at the other side of the club. So the house manager comes up to me and says, hey, why don't you go over and tell Ringo that it's, you know, Jimmy is going to jam later and uh, tell Ringo that it's okay for, for him to play your kit. And I said, oh, okay, it'd be awesome. And Ringo said, no, I, I think I'm going to be a spectator tonight. That's that's what I want to do. And I said, okay, okay. And, I, you know, and then I looked over and I was like, oh, should I ask him? Oh, that's going to seem so forward. And, you know, uh, maybe the next time, you know, it was the first time that I really gotten, you know, to hang out with Jimmy, you know, at all. And uh, and I was too shy to talk to him, to be to be perfectly honest. Now, the next time we all talked to him and, and Eric Bloom, who had the van, got to go out in the van and smoke pot with him. <laughs> <laughs> so Eric got, Eric got closer to Jimmy than I did. Yeah, so, uh, but it, I always thought that, you know, he would be around. I mean, that was, that was the whole thing. Uh, you know, I thought, well, I'll, you know, once he knows me better, uh, you know, he'll know, you know, I'm not just some jerk coming and say, hey, I want to play drums with you, you know, so, but it never happened. So oh, what a shame, what a shame. Yeah. <laughs> Good stuff. And now um, let's move on to Blue Oyster Cult then. I mean, honestly, one of, one of my favorite bands, a uh, huge group. And what was your take on originally then the name? I mean, you've got some fantastic um, song names as well that came along afterwards, but the name itself, Blue Oyster Cult, what was your first reaction to that name? Because it was Sandy Pullman, wasn't it, that, that came up with the name? Yes, yes. And and I, I bef- previous to Soft White Underbelly, I'd always been in bands that had names that were not very uh, imaginative. You know, I was in... Uh, my first band with my brother and my cousin, we called ourselves Vibrations until we realized that there was like a whole bunch of other vibrations and one was in like in the next town over. And we're like, oh, we can't call ourselves Vibrations. That's not going to work because people will be confused. So we didn't have a name for a while. We were just the band, you know, we'd play. And then uh, I was studying Latin and I said, oh, my favorite group at that time was the Royal Tones. 
Yeah, you never heard of them. They, they had an instrumental <laughs> so called Flamingo Express, which is a, uh, a track that I've been trying to to uh, to to figure out how how they got that magical sound. But I'm not and I'm still not sure. But anyway, it was a rocking track, Flamingo Express. And so instead of the Royal Tones, we called ourselves the Regal Tones. <laughs> so uh, that was the, that was the most imaginative name I could think of at that time. And then, then in college, like we had uh, we had a band that we originally called the Disciples. And then we found out that there was another disciple, same <laughs> town. So, so we uh, changed our name to the Travesty. So when I met Sandy, he had, uh, we were first software on their belly, and then we played this disastrous show at the Fillmore more east with eric bloom it was only his second gig and uh he probably was a little um like a little insecure about what he was doing and uh the rest of us we were kind of we didn't know what we were doing it was really just a chaos uh i mean we played all right but uh, i think we sounded bad but and the bottom line is that we got a bad write-up in uh, several papers the next day. So we decided to change our name. We first we we were like Sandy Perlman suggested Oaxaca, and we're like, yes, that's great, you know. And then uh, then he said, no, it's not great. It, people are going to get confused with the the town in Mexico. Uh, well, how about he said, uh, how about Los Maniacos Busboy Club? And we're like, okay, sticking with the Latin theme. He's like, oh, yeah, maybe not that. Well, how about Stock Forest Group? Like, oh, Stock Forest. After food. <laughs> food and band names just go together. <laughs> so uh, we were the Stock Forest. It was kind of a, a funny name. But then when we went to, to uh, sign the contract with Columbia, he said, we need a new name. And uh, today is the day we, ha so you guys have to make a decision. We said, well, we can't decide. We had had a whole bunch of different names. You know, the Santo Sisters, the Knife-Wielding Scumbags, the, uh, Richard Meltzer wanted Cow, which would have been a pretty good name, I think. Cow, who's, nobody's ever been called Cow. <laughs> <laughs> Vegetarian Cow. <laughs> uh, Sandy Perlman and Murray Krugman, who was our co-manager, uh, co-producer at that point, because uh, uh, he had said, uh, if you if you make me co-producer and co-manager, I will get you a record deal with Columbia. And he was good for his word. He got us the deal. And so it was time to so we said, Murray and Sandy, you guys go in a room and don't come out until you've got a name. And they went in this little conference room, and it was not even a minute later, they come out laughing hysterically. We got it! Blue Oyster Cult! And, and we're like, no, that's that's too humorous. What is it? I had never even had an oyster, so I was like, oh, that's it's just a funny word, you know? It looks like a female body part or something. And, uh... <laughs> So that, you know, he said, but you said, you said, he said, okay, so, so be it. Blue Oyster Cult. <laughs> I didn't think it was a great name. No. 
<laughs> but it stuck and it worked and honestly it's it's one of those names that everybody knows and it's 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 hung around for such a long time and it's so recognizable and it's just been brilliant in terms of the band and the the, the sound of the band and the feel of the band and the whole image of the band and everything it all kind of just it worked tremendously well there was a backstory to it too because it was uh, the, the title of one of sandy perlman's songs and which as it turned out, uh, it was uh, part of the Imagino series. Absolutely. Yeah. And I love that the fact that there, there seems to be this cyclical thing when it comes to, to yourself and, and Blue Oyster Cult, and we'll get onto that in a little bit. But uh, let's talk about the first album then. I mean, self-titled, had the brilliant lead single on there, uh, Cities on Flame with Rock and Roll, and you're on lead vocal duties. And that was something that was so great about the band, the fact it had such versatility to it. And there wasn't just a, a front man out front that did everything that, and then he he just did this and he just played the drums. I mean, you all sung, you all contributed in terms of songwriting. It was such a um, a tremendous group. It wasn't formulaic at all, was it? You no, know, I'd been in bands with uh, with Don and, uh, and with my brother. And uh, the, the band with my brother, he sang just about all the songs. You know, Joe, Joe sang them all. But then our college band, we had this fantastic singer, this guy, uh, Skip O'Donnell, Edward, Edward O'Donnell is his name. And uh, he was fantastic. He had one of the best voices I'd ever heard. And he sang with us and he and then, you know, we Don and I dropped out of college. We came, you know, back to New York City and uh, and so we were playing gigs. And at first we were just playing instrumentals, just jamming, you know, and uh, and uh, then we got a gig and I'm like, well, we need to we need a singer. I think the first time we got a gig, Richard Meltzer sang and he didn't really sing. He just screamed piss over and over. Piss, piss, piss. <laughs> Maybe he sang some other words, piss something and piss this and piss that. You know, but uh, yeah, and uh, and that was at the Cafe Gogo, and the, the the owner came up and said, "What are you trying to do to me? I just got busted for Lenny Bruce." <laughs> <laughs> it was only a few months earlier, like six months earlier, he'd been busted for Lenny Bruce. You know, using sanity. So uh, so he was mad. So then I said, "Well, I'll sing." You know, we got to have, you know, I'll sing some of the songs that we did in the college band, you know, and, and stuff that I did in high school. So so that's I was the first lead singer. I mean, Don wanted to sing, but he was so uh, into playing the guitar and just like focused on the guitar thing that he he was found it hard to, to do his thing and sing at the same mm -hmm. time. So, uh, you know, he's learned how to do that pretty well, I would say. <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> uh, I've also heard you say a few times your favourite album being uh, On Your Feet and On Your Knees, the live one that was recorded in 1974. Now, why is that your favourite? And was that the turning point of the band, do you think, given your belief, yeah. especially with, with what followed? Yes. Uh, first of all, uh, well, it was it was completely live. So uh, there was minimal. We might have edited some things and changed some things around and of course we picked the best cuts but we didn't really do any overdubs and uh any fix-ups so it's warts and all you know but you know but the the big thing is that we had jack douglas mix it and all of a sudden we had a, a sound that i mean yes the first three albums they have this kind of you know uh clunky uh kind of strange you know it's sort of very mid-rangey and not 
doesn't sound doesn't make your stereo sound great. You know, it sounds great on a terrible stereo, but if you have a really good one, it still sounds the same. <laughs> so, uh, so, uh, so that was the first one that really sounded good, and and we were trying to make the point to Sandy and Murray that it was important to have somebody who was really good to mix it, and uh, and and as a result, that was our first gold record. So it sold really well, much better than, you know, I think uh, uh, Secret Treaties sold like under 100,000, you know, like 80,000, which was, you know, for Columbia, that was fine. Fine. We'll let you make another record and they even give us more money, which is we used to hire Jack Douglas and uh, he mixed it. And uh, so... Yeah, that was that was a turning point, and I and I think that really it was one turning point. It was a turning point in terms of sound quality, and also just uh, us uh, um, being ourselves a little bit more. You know, in the beginning, the first record it was like you're supposed to sound like Black Sabbath, and I love Black Sabbath. You know, who doesn't love Black Sabbath? They're great, but. Uh, you know, we basically took the song, we'd written most of the songs already. So we just took the songs that we'd already written and sort of retooled them to sound a little bit more like Black Sabbath. Uh, but, you know, Black Sabbath doesn't really have harmonies. It was a lot of things that we incorporated. So it wasn't really sounding like Black Sabbath. But that was a, a blatant uh, effort to sound like Black Sabbath. <laughs> so, you know, and then, you know, so, so when we got to that, uh, that record on your feet, it, it sounded great. It was just a turn, you know, then the next record had the hit and that turned into its whole can of worms too, you know. Absolutely. The hit, as you call it. Yes. Um, don't fear the reaper. I mean, we, we can't not touch on it. It was absolutely massive. It was just incredible. Um, it just kind of came out of nowhere and, in terms of the song itself, the structure, I mean, it stops twice. It's its not a regular kind of song either. And the fact that it still gets played on, on, on the radio and stuff today is still phenomenal. I mean, what's your, what was your thoughts at the time? And what's your thoughts about the song now, looking back 45 years on? Oh, well, uh, you know, I, I the first time I heard it, well, actually not the first time. The first time I heard it, uh, Don had just called me up and said, here's, the, here's, the, here's this riff I just wrote. I think it's really cool. And I was like, oh, yeah, it sounds a little bit like Teen Archer. He goes, yeah, yeah, I'm using the same chords. You know, Teen Archer was a song on, uh, what was it, our second record or our first record? I don't know. I saw him about and he had a full demo of it. And he gave me a cassette, you know, to listen to on the plane. I had my, my Sony Walkman. And um, so I uh, listened to the cassette and I'm like, whoa, this is a hit. Holy cow, man, this is the best song I've ever heard, you know, and uh, I thought it was just amazing. It was uh, it was unusual. Uh, now, there was only one verse, just the one verse. And I was like, oh, Don, you need to make it longer, though. It's only like a minute and a half. <laughs> I said, well, I got some ideas. He goes, don't worry, I got it all figured out. <laughs> and so... Uh, yeah and but i knew it was i knew it was a hit and and how do i feel about it now i love it i still love the song i think it's a phenomenal 
uh, a piece of music and also a phenomenal idea. You know, it's very, uh, it, you know, I really, uh, what upset me for a little while was that when people said, oh, it's about suicide. And I'm like, what? I never got that, you know? And then they're like, well, Romeo and Juliet. And I'm like, oh, yeah, I suppose. I mean, is that what you think of when you think of Romeo and Juliet? I mean, not me. I think about these lovers, you know, and how crazy they were about each other and how their families were against it and all of this other stuff, you know, against all our odds, you know. So I thought it was just super romantic. You know, I think Don... You know, he was raised as uh, some Protestant religion, and I, I think he's sort of agnostic. You know, he's not really into going to church or any of that stuff. So uh, so this was his, his like, trying to imagine a life a- after death. Love it. And it's a great song, absolutely fantastic song. And we've got to mention, because I'm sure everybody does, but the cowbell. I mean, David Lucas, the man who suggested the cowbell, wasn't he? What was your reaction when you when you were first told to go with the cowbell? Uh, I was like, okay, if you let me play the triangle in the middle, I'll do it, you know, but why? You know, and he's just like, I just want to hear those quarter notes. You know, because the bass drum uh, is uh, not like I would usually play. I... Donald asked me specifically to sound like Mike Clark from the Birds, you know, not known as a great drummer, you know, but he he wanted that texture that you know what I mean, you know, where the I call it the white boy beat, you know, because it's just so unfunky. But uh, so David David Lucas, I think, wanted the cowbell to make it sound a little funkier. And I, I remember uh, I did a tour with who I used to call, you know, I went back in 1985 to do a, a tour because the drummer had uh, quit. I think it was Rick Downey. Rick Downey quit and they asked Tommy Price and Tommy said, I can't learn all these songs. Get Albert to do it. So uh, so they asked me and I, I went out on tour. And when I played Reaper, <laughs> I played a quarter note bass drum. Wow, that was total sacrilege. <laughs> People are like, what are you, yeah, you know, you know, don't fear the disco. You know, <laughs> I got mocked by the guys in the band. They're like, what are you doing? <laughs> trying to make it funkier. Don't make it funky indeed. Don't improve on perfection. Stop it. Enough of that. Um, and then the big hits obviously followed. I mean, you've had some huge hits. Godzilla was a big hit. Burning for You was a, a big hit yeah. as well. And the special stories around those sorts of things. Um, but a band's not a band unless you get banned from MTV. And you you guys have managed to, to achieve that, didn't you, with the, the Joan Crawford single, didn't you? What was your reaction to, to that? Oh, I was I was delighted. <laughs> I thought, how cool. <laughs> MTV, they play anything. <laughs> they banned us. <laughs> uh, no, I, I, you know, I mean, it was a flip. It was a flip side to burner for you. So it had already get got some play, and it was it was written by my friend David, and um, you know, I was, I was just happy that he was getting some recognition as a songwriter. You know, so uh, uh, yeah, I mean, you know, the funny thing is that burning for you w- was in the top ten. In the U.S. and Reaper never made it. Got to like twelve. That's it. But uh, yeah, 
but it has the staying power. Whereas burning for you, you know, you you hear it now and then on the radio, and it sounds great. You know, it's a much better drum part, as far as I'm concerned. I got to do my thing. <laughs> and um, you you left the band. You you came back, and as you said, you rejoined for certain points. And and we can touch on uh, Imaginos now, and and Reimaginos, because last year you you came back and you you released Reimaginos, and like we said earlier on, everything feels very cyclical, doesn't it, with with the band and 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 everything with the hits and the songs and things like that. Now uh, Imaginos and this second album, which is coming out soon, Imaginos Two Bombs Over Germany. Um, it it. It incorporates songs and and ideas from Sandy Perlman that go back to the the 60s originally, don't they? Yeah, well, uh, most of them, well, I mean, the whole Imaginos thing goes back, you know, Blue Oyster Cult was a song that was written in like 68 or, or, you know, 67. You know, it was right at the very beginning of the the band. And, uh, you know, so uh, an Imaginos 2, let's see, Oh, what's the old? Well, I, I, there's a bunch of songs from the first record, you know, Cities on Flame before the Six. You know, so it's most of the material is from the, the, the black and white era, you know, the, the first three records that everybody likes so much. And I understand why, you know, especially Secret Treaties, because the songwriting on that song, that, that album is great. I think it's really, there's not a bad, song on there they're all like super interesting and you know very uh, uh creative arrangements and yeah it's it's a good good record just for that you know i think that our problem was it didn't sound as good as it sounded when we left the studio and to go back out on the road you know like you know we had all the time in the world to make the first record you know had no gigs, you know, we're just sitting around the house, you know, smoking pot, <laughs> you know, and trying to, oh, man, well, what should we do? Should we get food or we should get pot? Pot! <laughs> 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 you know, it was like that. It was really a very, you know, Eric Eric had some money, so he would help us out, you know, and Sandy Perlman would help us out financially but yeah we had no gigs we had nothing so so we all we had was time to work on those songs but then the second record we never rehearsed anywhere but on on the road either in hotel rooms or on stage you know i mean not you know and sound check and stuff we spend a little longer on sound check if we could and and just go over some of these songs and hear how they sounded in a big place but um so and then we we did the whole record we i think we did the basic tracks in two days and then we did the overdubs in three i mean i overdubbed the drums on uh hot rails to hell yep with no click all i had all i had to listen to well they said how are you going to do this i said turn up the rhythm guitar really loud so i did it it was sort of metallica style you know me and the rhythm guitar. <laughs> I love that. I love that. So, so what was it that made you want to revisit the Imaginos then? And obviously, you released the first one last year. The second one coming out soon. So, what what made you think of, of doing this now? Well, a lot of it was, uh, yeah, I know, mail from you know, email from fans, you know, mail, email, and regular mail. I mean, people been talking to me about this for years. Like, I love your demos here on on the internet and uh you know are you ever going to release them and i'm like well they don't really 
don't belong to me actually they belong to columbia and i have to get their permission and i i'm getting no response you know they have they're like we don't want to spend a penny on this because it, it didn't sell it was a flop so um so uh i had started do i have a, a monthly radio show on my my oldest son's uh internet radio station every month every every third tuesday from seven to nine eastern time so that and over there it's like i don't know like early hours 11 to (laughs) one in the morning something like that or by you but anyway so i had this idea that you know uh and i'd been listening to a lot of podcasts like all these different uh and oh and bang geek bang I think that was that was mainly it was Richie Castellano doing live performances on his his show, and I was like, uh, and I had I had actually done a band geek, and I saw how he did it, so I was like, like oh, this is this is cool. So so uh, David Hirschberg and I started performing these Imagino songs on my radio show, and the reaction was, you know, well, I went from having 15 people listen to about 200. So it still seemed to be a good thing to do. But yeah, so, so, and, and uh, that, that seemed really great. I was having a great time and I'm saying, these songs sound great, you know, just an acoustic guitar, bass and drums. So let's go into the studio and record them. And then of course COVID happened, but we'd already started like, working on the demos and working out, you know, rearranging the songs and, you know, I was messing around with the keys, trying to find a better key for my voice. So we did it remotely, you know, uh, I did all the parts at first. And uh, I think it was about May or so I, I had David Hirschberg and, you know, when, when it finally allowed people to see each other and uh, he did all the bass parts. You know, he would come over, he would do a bass part and two vocals, you know, two background vocals. And then he'd do another bass part, and you know, and then he'd come back and he'd fix that other bass part and do another one. So I was, you know, he would come over and work for four hours. And then I started getting other people like R.J. Ronquillo in Nashville, who, who contributed a lot of guitar parts. And uh, Ross the Boss came over, or actually, no, he didn't, never came over. He, I sent him the track and he sent me a, a, a couple different takes and I put it together. And uh, Jack Rigg, of course, wanted to play on it. So I sent him a track and and then a fan, a fan, Vaughn Burton, he, as I was right into, I was working on Girl That Loved Me Blind. And he sent me a, a message, an email, and said, you know, I'd, I'd really like to know if, if it'd be okay if my, I did a, a version of that song with my band. Because I love that song, and I know it's never been put out before, and I have to get your permission if I want to be the first one to put it out. I said, well, no, you have, you're going to have to wait until, because I'm doing a, a version of that. But if you like... I'll have you play guitar on it, you know, because he had sent he'd sent me uh, links to his band, you know, playing different songs. And I'm like, oh, not bad, not really not bad. You know, he's pretty good. So he came and he played on that one, 
Now on the new one, he's he's playing on another song, but it's quite a different thing because that one I was like, it's you know he says I don't have an acoustic and I you know and I'm like well you can play electric but you got to keep it like keep it you know don't get too crazy with this not a whole lot of Jimi Hendrix distortion and stuff no you know leave your fuzz face out of it clean tones <laughs> <laughs> so uh, so he did that and. Um, so I, I got a lot of people to help me out, you know, and my brother Joe, you know, I was thinking, what am I going to do with Imaginos? I really have to really fix this song because that was, that was, I mean, most of the Blue Oyster Cult's Imaginos, I liked actually, but some of the songs uh, didn't sound as good as they sounded when I was recording it. It was all, it was secret treaties all over again, basically to me. But the song Imaginos was terrible. I just thought, you know, John Rogers' vocal was just, it was, it was ludicrous. It was, it didn't make, it didn't make you feel anything except, whoa, this guy is crazy or something. I don't know. You, you didn't get a sense of the story or the, the location or anything. The best thing about that track was the sax solo, you know. But the rest of the whole, re- you know, it just didn't sound good to me. Kenny Aronson's bass part, fantastic, but it didn't save it. And I listened to my version and I'm like, whoa, I sound terrible too. <laughs> <laughs> it wasn't super melodic, you know. Uh, when uh, John played me Reaper, I played him Imaginos. And, you know, because I said, hey, I wrote a song kind of like that a little bit, you know, and, you know, with the, ooh, Imaginos. And uh, he's like, yeah, yeah, that's cool. You know, he says, we're going to have a great record, you know. Of course, we never did Imaginos. It was, you know, Sandy didn't like it. So I felt that I, that was one of them that I had to fix that song. I had to make I had to make the vocal more melodic. And then I needed to set the scene and I was like, okay, well, this is supposed to be, you know, you're talking about the snake and the, and the buzzard and the fish and, and the desert and Mexico and all this other stuff. I think I'm going to set this in, in Texas and it's going to be, um, or, or somewhere down South, or maybe it's in Mexico going into Texas. I'm not really sure, but, but I wanted like a spaghetti western thing so i i played a baritone guitar and then joe played the trumpet <clears throat> and i was like that's exactly you know perfect you know lots lots of shakers and percussion i was very happy with how it came out which it didn't before it was the worst song on the original record and that was not right so i had to make it like at least as good as all the others if not better so, and i think i accomplished that what were we talking about? Absolutely, absolutely. So talk to us about this, uh, the uh, Imaginos 2 then, Bombs Over Germany. Yeah, okay. It's coming out very soon. Tell us about what we can expect from this one. Well, this is less of a correction. I mean, I, I felt like uh, uh, Reimaginos was a correction because I felt like that that record wasn't right. And so I had to make it right and right for me and right for the fans. <clears throat> this one is not... I didn't have to make it, uh, anything right. Most of the songs were amazing as, as they were. 
And some songs, I didn't want to change a thing about it. You know, like Before the Kiss, I did not want to change a thing about that song. It was it was perfect the way it was. And, or Quicklime Girl, you know, Mistress of the Salmon Song. So that, that's part two. So uh, part three still to come. Is that next year? And, and what are we going to expect from, from part three of the, tr- the trilogy? Are you working on it already? I've started, you know, and I've had some ideas and I've asked some people to contribute to it, you know, and I don't know, I don't, without putting any name, putting anybody on the spot, but I have asked a number of people to play on it. And uh, the only thing that I know for sure is that it's got to be epic. It's the last one and it's got to sound like this is it. So uh, as, as, uh, as humble and, uh, and uh, unassuming as Reimaginos is, this is going to be the opposite. This is going to be more like you know, the original Blue Oyster Cult Imaginos, where it's going to have, it's going to be a mixing nightmare. <laughs> <laughs> and I'm not going to mix it. I, and I had several ideas. One was, uh, it'll be a compilation record, and I'll have every song will be a different band. And, you know, so I'll get Metallica to do a song, and I'll get, you know, I'll get uh, uh, Wolfpack. Then I had this thought in the, Today, I was riding the train back from Long Island. I'm in New York now. And um, that, oh yeah, compilation records usually don't sell as well as uh, a record by a single artist. It's harder to promote. It's like, and so now I'm like, okay, then I have to, I'm not going to do that. I have to find a way to use all these people. (laughs) <laughs> you know, maybe I get Lars to play on one song. Was it Astronomy <laughs> that they did the cover of uh, for Gary Jink? Yeah, they did a, a cover of Astronomy, and I've also heard a cover, an acoustic cover of Veterans of the Psychic Wars. So, but that's not, that's a, like on a bootleg. Brilliant. Well, it's been an absolute pleasure chatting with you, Albert. I uh, wish you the best of luck with uh, Imaginos 2, and we look forward to the, the final part of the trilogy coming out. You've got some wonderful ideas, and I can't wait to see where you go with yeah. them. Thank you. Thank you very much. There you go, Albert Bouchard from Blue Oyster Cult. Such a fun, friendly guy, isn't he? Now, if you're a Blue Oyster Cult fan, definitely check out his new Imagino set. First two parts out now. Third, with hopefully some big-name guests, if he can pull it off, to follow next year. Now, if you enjoyed that interview, then also please check out last week's show with legendary drummer Carmine Apice. He's worked with some of the biggest names in rock and told stories involving Ozzy and Sharon Osbourne, John Bonham and Led Zeppelin, Rod Stewart and Jeff Beck. You know, there's fist fights, sabotage, sackings, and so much more. It's a brilliant extended interview along lines of about 50 minutes. I mean, I spoke to him for over an hour, but we got it down to about 50 minutes for the uh, podcast. So please go back and have a listen to that. And also please scroll back through the list of previous episodes as I've got over 50 shows now with some big name guests on there, including 10 Rock and Roll Hall of Famers. Right, now it's the time of the show where we look at my top fives. This is where I give you my favourite five songs from the artist or band of the artist I've just interviewed on the show. And now this is my personal choice. I don't claim it to be the definitive list. It's very subjective and hopefully maybe open some doors for anyone who may not be overly familiar with the group in question. So here we go. My favourite five songs from Blue Oyster Cult, according to Vintage Rock Pod. Number five is the opening track from their breakthrough studio album, Agents of Fortune. It's a short blast, but a sing-along rocker. There ain't no angels above, sang Eric Bloom on lead vocal duties. And number five is This Ain't the Summer of Love. There ain't no angels above, and they 
4 is from their 1981 album Fire of Unknown Origin. It's riff-heavy 80s style, bordering on power pop, made it a radio hit, and it's catchy and melodic for sure, with Buck Dharma on lead vocals. Number 4 is Burning For You. Number three is from their self-titled debut album from 1972, featuring drummer Albert Bouchard on lead vocals this time. It's a real stomper of a track with a dirty, heavy riff that blows the doors off to open it. And number three is Cities on Flame with Rock and Roll. Number two for me is the closing track on 1974's Secret Treaties album. Eric Bloom on lead vocals on this one. Its composition is brilliant, akin to Child in Time by Deep Purple in the way it builds and climaxes, only to go again for another round. I've always loved this track. And number two is Astronomy. And at number one, it has to be the big one. It means a lot to me personally, too. It's beautifully crafted, haunting vocals by Buck Dharma and lyrics around love and death, the stirring guitars. It really does have it all, including the most parodied cowbell in music. The number one Blue Oyster Cult song, according to Vintage Rock Pod, has to be Don't Fear the Reaper. There you go, my five favourite songs from Blue Oyster Cult. So many other tracks as well, only just missing out on that list. Please do check out ME262, Career of Evil, Veteran of Psychic Wars, Godzilla, which was, of course, a big hit for the band too, and also from what was a disappointing album, Club Ninja in the 80s. A song that I really did love from that album was called Perfect Water. If you've never heard that one, definitely check it out. And there's some other tracks in the 80s mould as well of the band, likes of Shooting Shark and Drone Crawford, which are very cool too. As ever, though, I'd love to hear your thoughts on this list. Where do you agree? Where do you disagree? Get in touch with me. Drop me an email, vintagerockpod at gmail.com, or you can message me on the socials, of course. Speaking of which, check us out on the channels at Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. I'm there. I share short videos and clips from the interviews, some pictures, links, all that sort of stuff. All you've got to do is search for Vintage Rock Pod on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. And also, we're on YouTube, too. On there, I post some of the video interviews. Sometimes it's the full interview sometimes it's just short clips some of the short clips garnering some big big views as well over 10,000 views on a, a short clip from one of my Steve Hackett interviews recently um, likes of John Ilsley's had over 20,000 views on the full interview too so there's plenty to see on the YouTube channel again just search for Vintage Rock Pod and you'll be able to find me give me a like or follow or a subscribe or whatever it is labelled on those sorts of channels and you'll be able to keep up to date with everything that goes on in the Vintage Rock Pod world also look out for the 
the Pantheon Podcast Network. Vintage Rock Pod is now proudly part of the network of music podcasts, which has just released a series narrated by the one and only Roger Daltrey of The Who. It's called The Real Me Podcast and is part of the Who Cares Teen Cancer America program. Definitely check that one out, though, and have a look through all the other fantastic series on the network as well. There's over, I think there's 60, 70, maybe 80 different podcasts, so definitely look out for that. Just look for Pantheon Podcasts Network. Loads of different music ones on there for you. Well, that's it for this week's show, then. More big-name guests to follow with Rock and Roll Stories Galore. Episodes released each Monday for you. And if this is your first listen, then make sure to follow or subscribe to this series so you don't miss any of them at all. So, until the next episode, remember, if you come across anyone who isn't a fan of rock, just tell them, my music is better than yours. Take care. It's NFL draft season, and that means it's time to start thinking about fantasy football. FantasyPoints.com features industry-leading experts and prognosticators using proprietary hand-charted data to help you score more fantasy points. FantasyPoints.com is the place to go for whatever kind of fantasy football you play. Whether you play fantasy football, daily fantasy sports, or do a little bit of everything, Fantasy Points has the meticulously researched content to guide you to victory. And why wait for the fall? Fantasy Points also covers the new spring football league, the UFL. Join the guru, John Hansen, Scott Barrett, Joe Dolan, and other massive names in the fantasy football universe with an exclusive offer. Use code Pantheon for 15% off any Fantasy Points package, including the all-in package, with access to every article, tool, and data nugget that Fantasy Points has to offer. That's FantasyPoints.com and code Pantheon for 15% off at Fantasy Points. FantasyPoints.com, code Pantheon. Score more Fantasy Points.